0: Sepsis is a life-threatening illness caused by your body's overwhelming response to an infection. UBC's Action on Sepsis podcast series focuses on telling the whole journey of sepsis from the perspective of the patient, with input from healthcare workers, researchers, and other individuals advocating for improved sepsis care nationally and globally. Now, join Christine Russell as she showcases a diverse collection of stories and shares knowledge from research and clinical fields to support learning, so that we can help protect yourself and your loved ones. My daughter
1: Ellie and I suffered from neonatal and postpartum sepsis due to Group A Streptococcus, which resulted in life-saving measures after her birth. To learn more about our story, I encourage you to listen to Episode 1 of this series. Today, I'm speaking with Marianne Viedler, professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, about the risk factors of sepsis, prevention, and some of the research being done for screening processes to reduce the burden of sepsis worldwide. Thanks so much for joining us today, Marianne.
2: Thanks, Christine. Thanks for having me here today. It's a pleasure to speak about this super important topic, um, particularly with the impact on women and women in pregnancy and postpartum. So... I think your story uh, really highlights some of the the challenges we see. We see in research and in clinical care around identification and diagnosis. And um, there, there are a few pieces to that. I think one thing that really stood out to me in, in hearing your story was you didn't present with some of the kind of known classic risk factors that we think about, right? So you hadn't had a cesarean delivery. Um, you didn't have you know, it wasn't your first pregnancy. You weren't pregnant with multiples. Some of these things we look at and we are like automatically think, okay, this woman um or this this pregnancy is gonna be of high risk and and also having had two previous healthy, uncomplicated um deliveries. So I think that's that's one of the the challenges that sometimes gets overlooked both by patients, families, healthcare providers, is really that anyone can be at risk. Um and also some of the challenges around what to look for. So a lot of the, the signs of both sepsis and other pregnancy complications can mimic what, what we experience in labor, delivery, and postpartum. So it's not um, abnormal to have a change in heart rate, abdominal pain, fatigue, right? So how do we differentiate these signs of, of regular pregnancy and postpartum and really when something is going wrong and having that um, hypervigilance without instilling also increased fear, um, so I think that that that's just really important to highlight and, and recognize. And I mean, I'm
1: sure you can feel that more strongly than anyone. Totally. I think um, it's funny that you say that because some of my first symptoms. I mean, Ellie was already in the NICU at that point, and they still didn't quite know what was going on. And I and I think I mentioned this when I when I was telling my story was that. Um, throughout the night I was able to go visit her, but come the next morning, um, I wasn't able to even walk over there. I, I walked over there. And then by the time I walked back, I was, I was walking back completely hunched over, like Mm -hmm. completely hunched over walking back. And I remember, uh, the, the attending physician obstetrician that delivered me asking me if I was okay. And I, and I just said, I just need to go back and lay down. I just need to go back and lay down. And, and nobody really clued in or asked. And again, I and I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, I'd, I'd only been in, in there just over 12 hours before then. And, and you don't really get to know your patients, right? I'd been in the postpartum yeah. unit for, again, less than 12 hours. My baby had just been moved to the NICU. And shift change had happened three hours, maybe two hours before then. So I don't even know if I had seen a nurse from that shift change at that point. And I walked back and hunched over, barely able to make it, get into my bed. And then finally a nurse comes to see me and I, and I'm telling her, you know, I'm not feeling great. Um, and my, obstetrician that I had seen throughout my pregnancy, who had seen me for my other two boys as well, mm-hmm. was coming to see me at 11 o'clock. This was at 9.30 in the morning. And he, when he did come to see me, I just said to him, I said, you know, I, I'm not feeling really good. Like I have severe abdominal pain. I'm p- passing fairly large clots. and And, you know, his comment to me was, like the after pains after a third baby are always worse. And so I Mm -mm. thought, well, I guess I better suck it up, thinking, okay, yeah, I guess this is this is just how it is. And I and like keep in mind, I delivered three babies without any medication. Like I delivered three babies with no epidural and no medication, unmedicated deliveries. And so my I would like to think that my pain (laughs) threshold is fairly high. And the pain at that point was fairly intolerable. Yeah. And so then by 1230, I was at the point, My then the nurse came in and I said, I'm really not feeling well. Like, I can't get out of bed. I was flushed in the face. At that point, I hadn't spiked a fever, but I said, I'm like, I'm really not feeling good. And she's like, well... You know, we'll just, we'll we'll ride it out a little bit longer when the, the obstetrician comes. That's on call, which is a different one at this point now. I'll get her to come and see you. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Thinking, okay, I better suck it up again. And it, there was something, I don't know what it was, but then... A few minutes later, she came back and then she looked at me and she said, you know what? You don't seem like the one that ty- is the type to complain. I'm going to call her right now. She checked my temperature and I had a fever of 105 degrees. And so, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. it comes down to, I think, listening, also listening to your patients a little bit. Totally. What's not, maybe not their normal You know, it might not be normal symptoms, but also what's what's not – a patient knows when they're not well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not feeling well. This wasn't Mm -hmm. my first time giving birth, and I know that this wasn't something that I had felt with my previous pregnancies before. Yeah. And I think, Christine, I think your
2: story is so important because it can also serve as that – for other women, right? Because you can imagine if it were your first pregnancy and you don't have a point of reference, even when you did, you're like, okay, third delivery, I just need to suck it up. And, you know, and I also think a lot of my work um, focuses in low resource settings. So it could be rural parts of Canada or low income countries where often um, women are much younger often they may have had less exposure to the health system antenatal care the human resources are extremely stretched so you know you might not see a nurse for many hours you might not see an obstetrician ever so you can see how those barriers are even more difficult or talk about language talk about you know we're hearing unfortunately more and more stories also about disrespect and abuse during pregnancy and delivery, right? So it's not easy to have your voice heard in the best of settings sometimes. Um, and, And so you can even, you can just imagine the more barriers that there are, how that becomes more challenging and there isn't a good benchmark, you know? Healthcare providers also are in a difficult position, right? We have these screening criteria which are always flawed at best, but they don't apply well in pregnancy, right? We have, a by definition, young, healthy person. If you're pregnant, you're usually of reproductive age, of course, you're healthy enough to be pregnant, but you're undergoing this huge physiological change, that these no longer match up, right? So you can't just take something that works in an adult man and assume it's going to work in this setting. So, but I think that that's why stories like this are so important because then women in these situations can think, oh no, I really feel like something isn't wrong here. It's wrong here. And I need to to make that heard, even if you don't meet the threshold for temperature or heart rate or white blood cell count or whatever that might be. right? Or, or size of clot. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah. And and unfortunately, I think too in my in our case, the fact that Ellie was admitted to the NICU was also one of the reasons why they were more diligent in mm-hmm. in investigating further that it's a possibility that I was also sick. Because right. When the pediatrician came in and and I was not feeling well, and they had started me on iV antibiotics, just um and and fluids because they didn't know for sure what what it was. They drew some blood, and then they started me on some IV antibiotics and fluids. When they came in to t- ask my husband Stephen and I to sign the consent form to Airlift Ellie out because she had cultured. It was the pediatrician that said, you likely have exactly what Ellie has. And so we need to also get you moved to the foothills in Calgary as well for Mm -hmm. um, better care for the infection because you're both becoming septic. And, I mean, it was a blessing and... I, like it's yeah. so hard to say that, but it was a blessing that we were both in the hospital when the infection was caught because I know that it after going through this, I had read so many other stories of women being discharged, um, not babies so much, but women being discharged and sent home, symptomatic. Um, and symptoms being overlooked, and and not making it back to the hospital and passing away because yeah. they had had either retained placenta um, or underlying cesarean infection, post yeah. par- any postpartum infection from similar bacteria, and, and 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 passing away because they mm-hmm. became septic and it was too late.
2: Well, and I think you know it can clearly it can come on what seems like very suddenly, right? Like it can progress to such a severe level very quickly. And I think as a society, as a healthcare system, community, we we take our eye off the ball once babies are delivered, you know? And I, I'd like to think that that's changing. And we're seeing the the mother, the women as more than a vessel for delivery of the baby. But I think historically that's often been the case and okay, baby's out, baby's good. Then we're good to go. Right. And even in postpartum follow up, most of that, I I suspect this is your experience. Well, I mean, maybe for your previous pregnancies at, at least that most of that is let's weigh the baby. How's the feeding? It's not about how the health of the mother is doing. And in so many ways, They're intricately linked, if for no other reason that, you know, women have value in and of themselves, but also their health is intricately linked, Mm -hmm. right? So Mm -hmm. um, I think that, I I like to think we're we're shifting. Okay, maybe this is normal and you're going to have that much greater resistance, probably, to speaking up and accessing care if there are no other structural barriers. If you have someone to take care of your kids, you live close to a hospital. You can afford to get there. You, you know, all of these factors that that are a huge consideration for many, many people, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think too, when when you do have postpartum follow-up care, whether mm. that's just the health nurse that comes to the house to weigh the baby, um, just make sure the baby's not jaundice, all mm. those things. And and the question does come, it's it's a very um ungenuinely asked question yeah. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And and the yeah. answer in some ways just needs to be yeah, I'm good. Because if the answer isn't no, I'm not good, the resources aren't always there right. for the for the mothers or if the answer is, no, I'm not okay, then you're in, incapable of, of doing your job as a mother. And mm-hmm. and so I think the the dialogue needs to shift um, yeah. when it comes to it's okay not to be okay after having a baby. Yeah. Whether you've had a traumatic birth, whether you've had a baby in the NICU or not, I, I think— having a, a baby is is such a life changing experience and yeah. yes of course we need to make sure that the baby is okay but if the baby's not okay then then or if the mother is not okay then absolutely the baby's not going to be okay. The baby's not going to thrive. Right. And you wonder why 8, 12 weeks after some mums are going to the lactation clinic because they can't properly breastfeed. I, I can't imagine that that's not stress-related inability yeah. to produce breast milk or or have a proper latch. And yeah. so if there's, if there's proper supports in place, and it's not just a simple question from the health nurse, oh, mom, how are you doing? in in an in, in genuinely asked question. Um mm-hmm. and, and I it's not their fault. I just think that it's it's a systemic issue is. when it comes to postpartum and neonatal follow-up care, whether again, whether the child's been in the NICU or not. And and I do think that um babies that have been in the NICU, there needs to be a more strategic way for follow-up care for those parents because and I talked about this in our, in our, in my podcast episode was that there was a, a, a a massive amount of PTSD that didn't rear its head until years after that I didn't even know. And postpartum anxiety that I didn't even know about. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I think the point,
2: it's kind of this, this double, not double-edged sword, but you know, it's both, we both take our eye off the ball, I think postpartum, especially on, on women, but it's also an opportunity, right? Like, it's a rare opportunity in a person's life where, especially when they're young and healthy, kind of by definition, usually, that they're we've captured them. They're in the health system. We're interacting with them. So it's such an opportunity to then continue this follow-up, to either identify unrelated existing maybe chronic diagnoses that they we didn't know about mental health things related or unrelated to pregnancy and delivery we have this captive audience and we're not doing a good job of utilizing that to keeping them in the system for the appropriate follow up when needed i think you know we just say oh here's the 6 weeks you need and we'll see you next time even though we know next time you're most likely gonna have the same complication or something related and and we don't deal with it until it comes around or until you know some sort of chronic condition develops down the road. so it's a shame, but I think it's also could be a real opportunity for mm-hmm. us to engage this population
1: mm-hmm. um, and educate them, yeah, especially with the with the with some of the patients that may have those. Those pregnancy complications, say such as gestational diabetes or um, hypertension or things like that, where it may yeah. be preventable prior to becoming right. pregnant a second time, right? So I just think, and then again, we're we're reducing the cost on the healthcare system, which is something that is always discussed mm-hmm. uh, in every single healthcare system. You know, Mm -hmm. we, we want to reduce the burden on the healthcare system so that we can see more patients when they need to be seen and, and we have better access to healthcare when we need it. So why aren't we, why aren't we shifting towards that preventative realm of healthcare when we can, when we have those patients already engaged in the system? Exactly. Yeah, and I mean, I think it
2: also relates to some of this long-term follow-up that you, that you mentioned in your story for for Ellie, but also for yourself. Could and it, this could be, you know, the PTSD, the mental health, but also other physical symptoms, whether it's future infections, um, as you experienced, or or other things. You know, we we look at postpartum often at that six weeks. Sometimes we're lucky if we extend it out to a year, but really. Everything that happens has these downstream effects, and we don't even actually, I think, know what they are because we're not looking. So we need to have this follow-up care in place to be tracking cases such as yourself to see what are these impacts on the health and well-being of women, children, families. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so we can also, of course, provide the timely and appropriate care, but so that we have the data to be able to inform what what we should be doing how we should be managing how we should be screening but I don't think I don't think we can confidently even say what are those impacts
1: and and going back to that what how how commonly is that studied now are we seeing that being studied in in your world or or are we not seeing that studied I'd say we're really not um and part of that's we let people kind of fall
2: back out of the system. So we're lucky if we follow up after women leave the hospital from a delivery. That's like the first goal, which is pretty low bar, pretty low bar. Um, and then we're, you know, maybe we get 48 hours, maybe we get six weeks. Some are trying to extend that out to the one year, but that's really as as far as we get. Um, we don't get to see, we're only slowly starting to get some evidence, I feel, about these chronic um, conditions that and, and non communicable diseases that are being developed after pregnancy complications long term. But I think we're just starting to see that, or we don't pick it up until they're pregnant again and and have another complication, right? Um, so I, I think there's a huge opportunity there. Um, obviously it's very like logistically challenging um, f- to do that follow up, but it's also vital for patients, I think. I think patients are asking for it. I I, I mean, we're hearing that, right? Um, They recognize that their health has been impacted by that experience, but they don't know how. And I I think as researchers, we don't always know the answer either. Um, And so we need to be looking at that. And we need to be looking at it in different contexts and how that is influenced from comorbidities, infectious diseases, non-communicable diseases, and, this, and our social setting, right? Are people of color having different experiences, low income, rural residents, right? The, these things also play into it.
1: Right. So are there any current studies that you are doing right now yourself?
2: Yeah, so we have a we have a few um projects underway looking um actually we I have we have one project in Africa looking trying to follow a cohort of both moms and babies because they really are uh, a dyad, right? They 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 travel together and their their health impacts one another and we're looking from pregnancy and so far we've got up to three years so not long enough but we're beyond the the usual time frame and and that includes you know getting biological samples getting clinical data and we don't even know what all the questions are going to be but i think having that data source and that biorepository allows us to be able to ask those questions over time. Um, and that's critically important. So we have that going on right now in Africa, um, in the Gambia, in Mozambique, and in Kenya. And I think it's also important we start to see evidence coming out from a variety of regions. Because a lot of this has been derived historically from the US, Canada, Europe. And of course, not the experiences everywhere aren't the same. And we are lucky in Canada that the burden of pregnancy complications, maternal mortality is relatively low. Of course, any death is a tragedy. But the burden is being felt in other places and being borne by women in other countries. And so we need to have the evidence of, of what's happening there and what's what's making that situation different and how do we appropriate, appropriately target it.
1: Because it's going to be different. hmm and I mean, the risk is relatively low in Canada um, for even maternal sepsis. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we were when we were in the hospital, I remember one statement being when we were at the foothills in Calgary. It's a it's a large teaching hospital, and I remember being um, every round all the rounds were eight o'clock every single morning, and I'd be there. Uh, when when I was out of isolation and discharged, but visiting Ellie in the NICU, um, the rounds were at eight o'clock and it would be full of med students. And mm-hmm. I remember specifically one neo- neonatologist saying to me that we don't ever, we have not seen, I don't think we had ever they had ever seen a baby on that floor. Um, in the years that he had worked there, that had had sepsis from group A strep, because his comment to me was that we only see this in third world countries or uh, or it was or a hundred years ago. And I remember that, and that statement has never left me because first <laughs> of all, I felt, it almost made me feel in some ways like it was my fault, I guess that that i did something wrong that she got so sick from something that shouldn't she shouldn't have gotten sick from i guess was more and i carried a lot of guilt from that for a very very long time um because technically she should never have gotten it if it was something that was abolished a hundred years ago or that doesn't happen in in a developed world, I guess, was more the way I took it, which wasn't his intent, I know, Um, but that's how I perceived it at that time. And, um, but again, I mean, what are the statistics really that, that are for maternal sepsis in Canada?
2: yeah i mean i think those are great points christine and i mean we're fortunate to have seen most of the pregnancy complications decreasing in canada so some of the latest estimates are around eight to nine women per ten thousand deliveries will experience maternal sepsis um but what's also important to recognize is those that get maternal sepsis in pregnancy and postpartum they are one of the highest um rates are one of the highest groups in ICUs. So yes, it may not happen often, but when it does, it's often severe. So it's about how often we're seeing it, but also what the impact of those cases are once we see them. And that and that's also what your story highlights, right? So the rates of mortality and ICU admission are, are actually quite high in those groups. So we've done good at, at decreasing the overall numbers. Um, but it still happens, and it's not something we will likely ever eliminate completely. Um, we have lots of good practices, you know, hygiene, infection control, but that doesn't fix everything, and that's not the root of everything, right? So we are going to have some some cases, irrespective of that.
1: I really appreciate you coming on today and sharing some of the the knowledge that you have around maternal sepsis and the impacts, you know, not just nationally here but globally. I think your work is is so important and it it just really highlights the fact that when it comes to research that that UBC does, it's not just in Canada and that we are you know, you are focused on making sure that you know, globally, we are making sure that sepsis is something that is recognized and treated and followed to make sure that the impacts of sepsis, not just nationally, but globally, are, are something that we're looking at. And so I really appreciate you coming on today, Marianne. Is there anything else that you would like to add just in closing? I think just, just to say thank you and thanks for the
2: opportunity to share some of my thoughts. Um, and really, most of all, for sharing your experience and your story, because I think these are so powerful in how we as researchers understand the problem, understand what we need to be focusing on and really letting that drive what we do. Um, and also for clinicians and, and really everyone. So, I wanna thank you for sharing
1: your story. It's very brave and um, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marianne. Great to speak with you. Not only is sepsis a life-threatening illness, but as you have heard, it can have lasting effects both physically and emotionally. It affects not only the infected, but their families and loved ones. My daughter Ellie and I were fortunate that our illness was caught in time and hope by sharing our story and speaking with the experts that you heard from today and in the previous episodes in this series, that it will connect with others who have been affected by sepsis in some way. If you or someone you know would like to learn more about sepsis or would like to get involved in any of our research projects, please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca. Thanks so much for listening.
0: This has been the University of British Columbia's Action on Sepsis podcast. We thank the brave sepsis survivors who have come forward to share their stories, our review panel that includes physicians, clinicians, and researchers, and our patient advisors. If you liked this podcast, make sure to hit subscribe to keep up with the latest episodes and give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Let us know what you think about this week's topic and join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. For links to topics on this episode, additional resources, or to listen to other Action on Sepsis podcast episodes, please Please visit our website at sepsis.ubc.ca slash podcast. Action on Sepsis is a plugged-in media production for the University of British Columbia. Thanks for listening.